church family, I'd like to uh, bring our attention and our focus onto that 16th verse of John 17. These are the words of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Profound words here from the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Who is Christ referring to here when he says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world? Of course, he is referring here to those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, true disciples, those who have been truly born again in Christ of another kingdom, true Christians. This whole passage in John 17 is taken up with the Lord's intercessory prayer as a mediator for his true blood-bought people. And we see this right throughout John 17. Of course, he holds here the priest, the office of the great high priest, doesn't he? Now, friends, it is a remarkable fact that the Lord Jesus Christ here mentions the world no less than 18 times in this passage alone. He mentions the world 18, no less than 18 times. It is very clear that Christ here is making a very clear distinction here of who he is. He says, I am not of the world. Of course, we know that he is from eternity past. He is from. He is not of this world. He created this world. And so Christ makes a very clear distinction here. That he is not of this world. Of course, he had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite of that day to contend, contend with. And right throughout, if you read John's Gospel from the first chapter right throughout, you'll see the Lord Jesus contending with the religious elite of that day. There's, there's to and fro with them, persuading them that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. And they're, of course, rejecting of him. And so it's very clear that Christ is making this distinction of who he is. I am not of this world. And it is also very clear indeed that he is making this distinction of who his true disciples are as well. True Christians, what are their characteristics? Who are they? Well, he says they are not of the world. There's something different about true Christians, those who are truly born again. There's something that has changed to them. Perhaps they were of the world. This world's systems, this world's way of thinking, this world's way of doing, this world's way of decision making. But something has happened to these people, fishermen, doctors, you name it. All people from all different walks of life. Something has changed. And now they are not of the world. There's been a change. There's been a distinction that's happened in 
their life. And then in John 17, over and over again, throughout the Lord's intercessory prayer for his people, we see these distinctions very clearly being made of who his people are and who he is. In what way, therefore, are Christians not of the world, this world, this world's way of doing, this world's way of thinking, Hollywood ideals, as it were, this passing, fleeting world? In what way are Christians, true Christians, not of the world, even as Christ is not of the world? Well, let us consider the following five ways. There's, there are more than this. But for time's sake, I'll con we'll consider five ways where true Christians are not of the world. Because firstly, they know God savingly. They have a real relationship with God by faith through Christ. That's very important. They know God savingly. Yes, intellectually, in their minds, but savingly. Something has happened to their heart and their mind. That's the main thing. They know God saving them. There is a, a real relationship with their maker through Christ. And that has irre irrevocably changed their course of their life. Secondly, true Christians are not of the world. Secondly, because they are kept, as we see in John 17, by the power of God. Those who Christ saves, he keeps to the end. And so secondly, they are kept by the power of God. Thirdly, true Christians are not of this world because, thirdly, they are sanctified and made holy increasingly. And so those who God saves and justifies, he sanctifies. Those who are truly saved, they depend upon Him, and they are increasingly sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, true Christians are not of the world, because fourthly, they are united by the truth and in the truth, as we see so clearly in John's Gospel 17. And fifthly, true Christians are not of the world, this world, this passing world, they're in the world, but they're not of the world, because fifthly, they will soon be glorified with Christ. And so they live in expectation of Christ's coming by prayer and by diligent watch and by living and walking according to the word of the Spirit. And so to begin with, in what way are Christians not of the world? Firstly, because they know God savingly. And I say that, that word savingly because it's very important. It's not just an intellectual thing to know of the doctrines of grace, reformation principles, to know of certain Bible truths. These things are helpful. It's good to be a student of the Bible. Um, Intellectually, it's, that's not enough. You see, it must work its way through to the heart and the desire and the affection and the soul. We must have a real, lasting relationship with our Maker, with Christ. 
And that is a problem, I'm afraid to say, with much of the worldly Christianity around us. Much of the nominal Christianity around us is that it's a Christian in name only. And we see here the distinction the Saviour makes that they are not of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. They know of Christ savingly. They have a real relationship with God. There has been a change, a distinction, a transformation, a transaction, a supernatural uh, working in their heart, in their life, that is wrought by the, the Holy Spirit. And this change, uh, when this happens, when the gospel really takes effect, it, that person lives exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you've got to ask yourself the question. I've got to ask myself the question. Am I living exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ in my life? Have I truly, has the gospel, which is the power to salvation, has that truly taken effect and, and so changed my heart that my whole life is now governed, not by what I think is good for me, not according to Hollywood ideals, not according to that, that man or this person, but according to the word of the living God, according to what Christ has said, his words. Is my decision-making process governed in heaven now? Am I thinking eternally? I'm no longer thinking temporary, the greater part of who I am, my soul, my eternal soul, I know that I'm saved now for eternity. I, I, I know the great cost, what it costs the Saviour to, to lay down this holy life, to be punished in my stead, to take on board my sin and to, pun to be punished. And so if this has, has really taken effect, in my heart, if I have truly understood the gravity of the gospel, then this will outwork itself in a true transformation of the, of the heart to, to a life that is exclusively set upon the Lord and His glory. And yes, of course, true believers can fall, their faith can waver, their faith at times needs reviving, they can fall into besetting sins, they can backslide, we know that. But by and large, the pattern of worldliness and sin has been broken. And they're now in a different, headed in a different uh, trajectory. Their thoughts and their desires are heavenward. I, I now belong to the King of Kings. I'm now a citizen of heaven. I'm now living for eternal purposes, eternal matters. I'm not my own anymore. There's a higher purpose in my life. I'm not just going to live like any... Like, like everyone else, eat, drink, be merry, uh, watch telly, live for the here and now, repeat the cycle as it were. I am, there's now a higher purpose in life now. Christ has saved me. I'm, a, I'm part of his heavenly kingdom now. I'm enrolled in his service. I dare not do what I want anymore. And the words of the Saviour, of course, Throughout Scripture, the, count, the full counsel of Scripture declare this to be the case. If, if you don't hate mother, father, son, wife, children, brethren, and even yourself, those are not the exact words, but pretty much 
that if you, if you don't love God more than yourself and your loved ones, you cannot be my disciple. The Lord is not saying that we should hate our wife or our children or brethren or even ourselves. He's, what he's saying is, if I am not first in your life, you are not truly a Christian. You, you, have, not, you have not truly experienced the new birth. Because Christ has to be first. Else he will not. He, he, he has to be first, else he is last. We have to have the creature, the creator, must be in pole position. Else the creature will take us away from the, the creature. He will not compete with his creation. He has to be first upon the throne of our hearts. Because the one will always take the other away from, from, from us. And so firstly, the distinction, because those who truly are not of this world who are true Christians, they must know God savingly. This is not an intellectual thing. This is a hard thing. The matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. It's all about the heart, the desire. Has this transformation taken place? Do you have a real abiding relationship with your maker, with God, by faith? Has it changed you? If, if you have been saved, if you've truly been converted, and that for eternity, well, that will change everything, won't it? That will completely change the outcome of your life. But why do we see so much worldly Christianity, nominal Christianity around us? We've got to ask the question, has that change really taken place? Yes, I can know of intellectual many truths, biblical truths, but the changes in the heart and in the affection, it changes. If I've been saved through eternity, it will completely change my life. I'm not my own anymore. I'm dead to this world. I'm alive to heavenly, eternal truths now. I live for his kingdom. I'm in his kingdom. I'm awaiting his, king, his kingdom. It never ceases to amaze me the amount of Christian nominal professors there are who do not take Christ at his words. It's amazing. The unbelief amongst many professors nowadays, they do not take the Bible seriously. How, how often have we gone out and we've spoken to people about the necessity of the new birth? Do you take God at his word? Well, this is not important. It's not important to be born again. It's not important to have men preaching the word of God. We can have women preaching the word of God. We can join hands with the Churches Together movement, although their doctrine is completely uh, away from what the Bible teaches. We do not hold hands with Catholics who deny fundamentals of, of, the, of, 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 the, of, of the truth of the Bible, and yet the Churches Together movement, well, we can invite people to preach in our churches and them to preach in the church. We are partakers of their sins if we do these things. We, we're encouraging these things. They darken the pulpit, as it were. And yet, no one, it seems increasingly that many professing Christians do not take Christ at his words. 
nor the Bible seriously. It's amazing. And such, dear friends, are the days that we're living in. Verse 3 of our text in John 17 says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. They know God. They know life eternal dwelling in them. They are living now for for Christ and for eternity. They're not living for themselves anymore. There's a real relationship here by faith. Quite simply, I'll ask you the question, as I've asked myself, do you know God savingly? Has there been a time in your life where this holy calling has, has completely changed you? Has set your heart and your affections on that of eternity? You're exclusively living for Him. Is He in you? Is eternal life? Is the truth the way, the truth, and the life, Christ, God in the flesh, dwelling in you. Has this transformation and this change really taken place? I, I don't ask you how much of the Bible you know. I don't ask you about your theology, although these things are important. I ask you, do you have a real abiding relationship with God through Christ? And does that mean more than anything in this world? more than your wife, your children, your family? Do you put him above everything? Future wife, you name it. Is that true of you? It must be, if you claim to be a true Christian. You can only be eternally secure if you have the way, the truth, and the life. That which is from eternity, dwelling in you. Why is that? Why do we live in such a day where we see so much sadness out there? You know, sometimes I just sit, perhaps on a bench and I have my lunch, and I see people walking past, and you just look into their face, and you see the emptiness there, and I knew this emptiness once. You see the emptiness there, the, the, the brokenness there, the void there, trying to fill the eternal soul with temporary things, shop, shopping, retail therapy, going do my nails all the time, my hair, beautifying myself, getting the latest thing, the latest thing, and even good things, even nice things. You know, and, and of course Christians are fine to, to have to be some of these things. But the problem is, is that people are living for the temporary. They're just living for the here and now. Whereas the soul that God has given us, which is the greatest asset that we have, is eternal. And the problem is, is there's this great eternal vacuum within each and every one of us. And what we do is we try to fill that eternal vacuum with temporary things. If I can just get this person, if I can just get this person's heart and I can be with this person, if I can just beautify myself and be 18 again, if I can just get these Hollywood ideals, this car, this career, this wealth, if I can just have a, a big social status, if I can just have these things, I'll be happy. It's the lure of the devil, isn't it? I'll be happy if I just get this. And you get that, what happens? You're not happy. 
Well, oh, okay, well, you just have to get that. And you get that, and you're not happy. And, and just to get that, and you get that, and you're still not happy. Why is that? Because you're made, and we are made for eternity. We have this eternal vacuum. And only Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, can fill that which is eternal, the soul. And that is the dilemma, isn't it? And that is the dilemma with many worldly Christians. If I just go to church once a week, if I just do certain things, be a charity, be a kind person, I don't swear, well, God will accept me. I'm sorry, that is not the gospel. You see, you have to have God. You have to have Christ dwelling in you. Else you'll always be found wanting. There'll always be an emptiness there. There'll always be a void in your heart. And for years, this is what I had. I was brought up as a Christian. My mom took me faithfully to church. I was under the gospel for many years. I, I increasingly uh, said I was a Christian. But I wasn't a true Christian. There was worldliness in my life. There was a disregard for the commandments. There, there wasn't a truly, a, 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 a truly forsaking of sin and of this world and a truly embracing of Christ and what he has done and a seeking of him as a pearl of great price. And I knew it. Deep down I knew it. I knew something was wrong until that glorious day that the Lord revealed really even my righteousness, even the things I applauded. He showed, he showed my vileness and my total depravity and my absolute need of them. And he converted me that day. And he became first in my life that day. Has this happened to you? Has that void been full? Full? Is he first in your life? The Lord Jesus said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants fight. You see, we would be going out there with our swords. And fighting if this kingdom was, was, was God's kingdom. But we, we have an eternal kingdom we're looking forward to. We fight the fight of faith. We put on the full armour of Christ. To know God savingly is to be joined to Christ's kingdom now. To be joined to his kingdom now. He doesn't just save us from hell. Yes, he does save us from hell, but that's not it. He saves us now. From living a base, shallow life. So that we have a higher purpose in life. We're living for his kingdom. I'm a citizen enrolled in his service. My allegiance is to him now. He is my king of kings. I'm living for him. I'm under his good government. I'm walking by faith and not by sight anymore. I'm no longer living for the passing things of this world anymore. They're going to be burnt up. They're not going to last. Where is the wise man of all? Where is the person that's giving their heart to the things of this world? The pleasures of this world? Where are they now? Are they not in the grave, says Solomon? Are they not dead? Where are the people who just gave themselves to the things of this world? They're in hell, aren't they? This world is not our friend. We must understand that. This world is not our friend. 
the friend to our souls is Christ, the Saviour, the one who can save us from sin, the devil, and this world. I suppose the reason why there is so much worldly Christianity is because for many the gravity of the gospel has just not sunk through to the heart and to the affections. It's just an intellectual thing. I hear it all the time. I'm saved. I know this about the Lord. But it hasn't changed their life at all. I still go to the pub. I still do this. I still do that. No love for the Lord's Day, really. No keeping the Lord's Day holy. I No longer under the law, under grace. What an abuse of Scripture. What an abuse of God's Word. Increasingly we are living in such days, aren't we? It is, it is, it is a stunning. It is absolutely stunning how the... the, 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 the the doctrines of grace are abused. They were never ever meant to be abused in such a way. I'm no longer under the law anymore. And that's true. We're under grace. But grace gives us a love for what God loves. The Lord Jesus points straight back when we're converted to the commandments. If you love me, you'll love the commandments. I want to keep the Lord's day holy because I have eternal life in me. Because I've got Christ in me. Because I've got the Holy Spirit in me. And what does the Holy Spirit do in me? It makes me holy. It doesn't make me more unholy, does it? It does exactly what it says it does. It makes me holy. It keeps me. It sanctifies me. It teaches me. It gives me a new desire. Heart desire and affection to love Him, to live for Him. Yes, I'm no longer condemned by the law anymore. Of course not. But I love it. I, I, I love the law. I want to honour my parents. I do not want to covet that which is not good for my soul. I, I, I'm, I no longer. I want to be found faithful. And, and, and when these sudden passions come striking into my heart, the fiery darts of the devil... I repent of them. I repent of them at the crack of the dam. Not when they outpour. This is, this is what the real Christian is. It's, it's the heart. Is this true of us? It must be true if you're a true Christian. And so once again, the gospel invitation is given today. Christ said in verse 4, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What work is the Lord Jesus Christ referring here? It is the work of eternal salvation. That's the work. The, the work that completes an utter work of salvation is complete. It's accomplished. Who has finished the work? Christ has finished the work. The Lord Jesus, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. The work which the Father gave the Son to do, to save the people for his glory, it is him, it is Christ alone that has done this work of salvation. And if there is any, is there anything more for us to complete, 
for the salvation? Is there something which I must add to the salvation to make it more full, to make it more entire? No, not at all. If we take Christ and his words, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It's entire, it's complete. It doesn't need us to accomplish this finished work, the thief upon the cross. No, no works at all. A life of sin. And yet the hour that he believed that indeed the man that was hanging next to him was indeed the Son of God. And he believed that that man was dying for his sins personally. And he believed that that was indeed the Son of God. And he believed in it with all his heart. And that day he was made completely and utterly righteous in God's sight. God's salvation, when God looked upon that man, he looked upon a righteous, holy person. And that day he was in paradise. A life of wickedness, in, in a short space of time, turned completely upside down. And like I always say, if that, that, that thief on the cross went on to live for weeks or months or years more, that righteousness would have been manifest in a holy life. He would have changed and it would have been shown in a holy life. This begs the question, how has Christ finished the work? True salvation requires perfect obedience, and that disqualifies everyone. All of us, because we do not have perfect obedience, do we? The Bible says even our righteousness is as filthy rags in this sight. Even the things that we think are good, we're proud of, and we, oh, I do this and this. Well, we're proud, we're conceited over these things. True salvation requires perfect obedience, and that disqualifies us. We're all guilty before God. And God, of course, is not only a God of infinite love and mercy, He's a God of justice. And so, and you won't hear this preach in most churches today, penal substitution, but because he is a God of justice, he must punish sin. Else he would not be a just God. He would not be a holy God if he did not punish sin. We all break the commandments, you see. And that's why Christ, the Lamb of God, given before the foundation of the world, had to, be, had to go to that cross to live that perfect life of obedience that we could never live. Perfectly obeying the commandments and doing the opposite of the commandments. He did not steal, he gave. He lived a, compl a completely righteous life. And yet he died as a lawbreaker, as a criminal. Why? Because he satisfied God's justice upon sin. God's justice has to be satisfied. No sin can defile the courts of heaven. And that's why the, the, the spotless, pure, obedient Lamb of God was there. And the full wrath of God the Father was poured out upon the Son. And the Son bore our sin. He suffered an eternity of hell for us, miraculously. It can, it, it's a mystery to us, these things. We cannot fully understand it. But that's what He did. All my sin. Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, a lifetime of sin, 
thought, deed, action. He, he bore it on that cross of Calvary. And he had the victory over sin. He rose over our greatest enemies, sin, death, the devil, the world. And he is now risen and victorious, sat at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding for every one of us here today. Will you listen to him? Have you listened to him? Will you obey that holy calling? Will you be serious about your maker? Will you take Christ at his words? I really hope and pray so, friends. You know, right throughout the Bible, the Lord God makes a promise to us. He says, draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. He says, turn, turn. In other words, turn from your sin and look, and you'll live. He, this, this is a promise that he makes. If we do draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to us. If we do turn from our sin seriously and, and look to him, he will save us. You do not you need to ask that question. Am I one of God's elect? Am I a true child of God? When the promise is, is in the word, he gives us our responsibility. Seek, and you shall find. Seek Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not what that charismatic man says, or this person says, or whatever that denomination says. No, no, no. Seek first the righteousness of God, the kingdom of God, and His righteousness. The righteousness which He gives us that he achieved on the cross of Calvary. Draw nigh to him, and he, he will draw nigh to you. You'll be found in him. Turn, and you will live. It's a promise. And God always keeps his promises. The second reason why Christians are not of the world is because, secondly, they are kept by the power of Almighty God. They are kept by the power of God. And this is what we see in John 17 as well. The Lord Jesus prays in verse 11, Holy Father, keep through thine own name thee, those whom thou hast given me. God the Father gave true believers to God the Son. We belong to Jesus. They're gifts. We are gifts. We are gifts. And of course, salvation is a free gift. Verse 12 says, Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Not one single person who is truly and soundly converted will be lost in the end. Because before the foundation of the world, God has sent their love upon them. Once the good shepherd picks up a poor lost sheep that truly acknowledges their lostness and their sin and their straying, and Christ, the good shepherd of their souls, once that, that lost sheep is put upon those broad, shepherd, uh, broad shoulders of the shepherd, they in no wise can be lost. What a blessing. Well, praise be to God that uh, this is his work. I'll be very scared if salvation is on my doing. Very scared indeed. <laughs> well, uh, all of us would be <laughs> petrified 
We would not, we would not last one minute, would we? Salvation is of the Lord, the Lord our righteousness. How are Christians kept? They are kept by the Holy Spirit, aren't they? John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Into all truth. This is how the, the true Christian is kept. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is holy. It must make you holy. Else, if it's not making you, you holy, you're not a Christian. And I'm not saying we cannot fall as Christians, that we cannot have a time in our life where we backslide. Of course we can. But let's get the context here. If you are living in a pattern of sin, and the deadlock of sin has not been broken, you're not a Christian. And the Bible confirms that. If you're still living for things of this world, more than things of the next world, you're not a Christian. And I do not say that with any pride. I say that because you need to be honest with God. I want you to be soundly converted, because one day we'll all stand before our maker. And a bare profession will not do. Are you soundly converted? John 16, 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. You love the Word of God. It will indeed be a light and a lamp unto your path. It will be your daily bread, as it were. You'll get before it every day and pray and weep over it sometimes. You'll feed upon it. The, the, the guiding is in the detail of the Word of God. It's not just about knowing the fundamentals about doctrine. It's in the detail. When we open the map, we have a picture of a country. Yes, that's great. I can see the country. But when I get into the detail, I can find my, and navigate my way, can't I? The Word of God is the light and the lamp. Am I praying over it? Am I seeking God's face? Am I praying for the Lord to guide me and to reveal His will to me? He does so by the Spirit. They are kept by the Holy Spirit. Now what means does the Holy Spirit use in the guiding and keeping of true Christians who are not of the world? He uses the much despised and much abused means of grace. What are the means of grace? Which our forefathers were so blessed with and which are so despised in our days. Well, the means of the primary means of grace is the Word of God. Are we every day coming before the Word of God as our daily bread? Coming before Christ, pouring out our heart before Him, for He is our refuge, reading the Word, being guided by Him. He speaks to us through the Word. That is the primary means of grace. Prayer. The Word of God. Belonging to a true Bible-believing church. Not a compromised church. A true church. That holds biblical truths. Do I love the means of grace? And the Lord's Supper. Of course. Being the felt presence of the Lord. Being sanctified, when later on we'll remember the Lord's love for us and He is present with us by faith. What do 
I know this means grace in my life. Christ says in verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why would this world hate Christians? Ask yourself that question. Why are Christians hated to a, to a degree? Why is there a degree of persecution for true Christians? Because the word of God is deep within their hearts. And they live according to that word of God. You see, if, if, if you're in, in ease in Zion, there's a problem, isn't there? If you're truly living for the word of God, you're not running to the excess of the world. You're living for the Saviour. You're living according to the Word. And the world, the world hates that. The, the world wants you to go to Vanity Fair to join in. And they will do the utmost to try to, to distract you and take you away from the world to come and from Christ. How many Christians do you know that treat the Word of God as their final authority for both faith and practice and life. How many? Very few. Very few. And the words of the Saviour are stunningly accurate, aren't they? Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that enter thereat. Oh yes, there are many professors, but very few are actually on that straight and narrow way. True biblical Christianity is despised in our day, even amongst many professors. True Christians, we are told in verse 15, are also kept from evil by Christ's intercessory prayer. We are kept from evil. We do not give our hearts, like worldlings do, to the vain things of this world. It's, it, the motivation is one of love, isn't it? And this brings us to our third point today. The third reason why Christians are not of the world is because they are sanctified through the Word. And this is what we see in today's passage of Scripture. They are sanctified through the truth. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word, that's the word of God, is truth. When we come to this, to come and worship the Lord, do we come wanting to be the word of God? Do we come expecting the word of God? To hear the word of God? Or are our minds and our hearts elsewhere? The same within our private devotion, the same within family worship. Do we come to, to, to listen to God's words? To esteem them, to value them. Do we tremble at the word of God? Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Those who know God savingly, those who truly are justified, depend upon God. Those who he saves, he justifies. And those who he justifies, he sanctifies. I've never seen a believer who was never justified, who was not sanctified. Those who he saves, he justifies. And if he justifies them, if they are justified in Christ alone, by faith alone, 
by his grace alone, then they will be sanctified. Why? Because they've received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit teaches them all things. God never saves a soul that will not be sanctified. And so you know really by practice, not only by word, you know by practice those who are not truly Christians. Because they live in the world. But it's not a problem what I do with the Lord today. I can just do what I want. I'll go shopping. I'll just visit that friend, this person on the Lord's day, no problem. I'll just do this and that, go to these places. Not under the law anymore. Not, not according to the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. The Holy Spirit, like I said, makes people holy. It, it is a blot upon the name of Christ. It darkens the courts of heaven when, when, we, when we toy like Aaron's sons did with sin. And when we so abuse scripture, we make excuses for our sin. We, 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 we must be honest with God. Of course, the Holy Spirit makes us holy. It doesn't do the opposite. No longer are we conformed to this fleeting, passing world anymore. It's dying. We're dying. This world is not our friend. It will never be our friend. We know that everything around us is decaying. Our best friend, the friend of our soul, is Christ. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord without holiness. Not only holiness in terms of being truly converted, but holiness of life. Because true faith seeks to obey the word of God, to live the word of God. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I better speed up. The fourth reason why Christians are not of the world is because increasingly they are united to the truth. And we see this in verses 23 through, uh, 20 through 23. They teach us that. That the reason why Christians, true Christians, are not of the world is because increasingly they are united in the truth. It is the truth that unites true Bible-believing Christians together. It's not a charismatic man. It's not this person or that person or a particular denomination, although these things can be important. It's the truth. It's the truth that unites true believers together. And they can come from all different walks of backgrounds. Why is it that we are one of the only churches in this area? And I do not say this proudly, but why is it that we are one of the only churches in this area not to have embraced the Churches Together movement? Why is that? Why have all the churches embraced Churches Together? How can Anglicans hold hands with Catholics? The, the, the fundamentals of the Word of God are, are completely undermined. And many, in many of these churches, many of the fundamentals of the Word of God are on the mind. 
What foundation are they standing on, anyway? It's not the Word of God. It's this cherry-picking Christianity. And, I, and I'm sorry to some of you may think that yeah, goes me again, talking about this again. But I say this because worldliness is the biggest problem that, that the Christian church is facing nowadays. Worldliness. And it doesn't... This church, it doesn't matter that we can have a, a, a woman to, to be a vicar, to preach. It doesn't matter that we do not preach about penal substitution. It doesn't matter that we uh, do not embrace the fundamentals of the gospel. It doesn't matter. We can, we can, we can offer a works-based salvation, a do-good of salvation. Well, these things, these things, we can offer baptismal re regeneration. We can offer these things. No, because the Bible is against them, the Word of God is against them. The second epistle of John, verse 11, says, For he that biddeth in God's, God's speed is partake of his evil deeds. It's, the Lord is talking, is warning about the Gnostics here, which, have, which perverted the, the true gospel. And he's saying that if you endorse these people if you partake of the same undermining of the word of God and of the gospel of these people you are partaker of their sins you're encouraging the breaking of God's law and you in fact you're a partaker of them that's why, that's why every week I get emails from other churches come and join us join the churches together movement come and pray with us and I've said no but they keep on emailing I will not partake. I will not want this church to partake in their error. I do not say that proudly. I wish, I wish this was not the case. But we have to stand upon the word of God. Or else, if we compromise, we are partakers. We are partakers of our sins. Oh, but we got the articles of the Church of England. Oh, but we got these things. It doesn't matter. If you've departed from the word of God and you allow homosexuality and women vicars and you're embracing the churches to give them even, you've departed from the word of God. Your gospel is a phony one. I'm sorry, and I do not say that with any pride, but you've departed from that. And those who support that are partakers of that. You see, so to many people, I would see them as a legalist. But these things were just normal 50, 60 years ago. Most people howled to these truths. The fifth reason why Christians are not of the world is because they have, they have a real assurance of being glorified with Christ. And I say a real assurance of being glorified with Christ. True Christians live in expectation of Christ's return. When he comes, I'm going to be found living for him from the heart and the mind, watching and praying, daily living for my Savior. This is true of us. I, 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 I know he's coming back. I'm living in expectation of this, of his return. He's coming back. He could come back before the service ends. Is my heart right with God? And so the reason why uh, true Christians are not of this world is because they are daily living 
in a real expectation of being glorified with Christ. Increasingly, they are being despised in this world, hated, because they are not following the crown, as it were. I'm not just going to go along. I'm hated because of it. They know of Christ's love and joy. They know that he has loved me with an eternal love. He suffered for every one of my sins. He bore them away on that cross to save my never-dying soul for eternity. If I truly embrace that, if I truly understand that from the heart, and I believe in what Christ has done, that will irrevocably change my life. It will be completely transforming. Christ will be exclusively first in my life. My decision-making process will be made in heaven for his kingdom. I dare not do what I want in my life. I dare not lean on my own understanding anymore. Is this true of us? The worldly Christian, ha Christian has no such assurance because they believe not that God means what he says. They don't believe in it. When you get down to the particulars, they don't believe that God means what he says he means. James 4.4 Know you not that friendship of the world is the enmity with God. Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You cannot get much plainer than that. If you love the things of this world more than God, you, you, you're not a true Christian. And whilst true Christians can display worldliness, can fall into besetting sins, can backslide, I have. I've had some terrible backslidings in my life. I'm being honest with you. But the, 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 the true believer doesn't show a pattern of these things. The, the true believer doesn't see the world as their friend. This, this world's going to be burnt up. I believe what the scripture says about this world. This world is temporary. It's phony. It's a big show. It, it's, it's an illusion. It's not my friend. Christ is my friend. Because he is a friend of my soul. He is a friend, only friend of sinners. Proverbs 28, 9. He then turns away his ear from hearing the law. Even his prayer shall be an abomination. Firm words, aren't they? Proverbs 28.9. He then turned away his ear from hearing the law. Even his prayer shall be an, an abomination. Don't expect. Don't expect a thing from God in prayer if you do not mean to turn from your sin. If there is not even a framing of your heart and your life around that which is good. You see, the, the, much, the, 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 the much preaching today is, God can forgive you, but there's no exhortation to turn from sin. To frame your life around that which is good. That's a false gospel, I'm sorry. God says, turn and live. Repent and believe. You see, we must Turn from our sin. There must be a true framing of our life around God. And like I, I gave this illustration recently, we have this little rose by our, our doorstep. 
this tiny little rose by a And I came along, and clumsy dad, as it were, and I kicked off the top of this rose, head by the doorstep by accident, and it's just a stalk, just one rose there. And one of my children got a frame, put it around there, so clumsy dad would kick over this rose anymore, framed it, put some nice soil around it, ericaceous soil or whatever it is, <laughs> and, and nurtured it, and then two roses have now popped up. And they've fallen off now, but they're beside the point. But the frame was there, the framework was there. You see, true salvation, when we truly call upon the Lord, there's a heartfelt, there's a, there's a heartfelt turning from sin and a framing of that which is righteous and good. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the Lord, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Christ says once again in our sermon text, verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I hope to some degree I've given us something of what true Christians ought to be like. And if you're not a true Christian, it's not too late. Friend, does this describe you? Does the, 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 the words of the Lord Jesus describe you? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Christ was not of the world. He was over and over in John's Gospel. Read the whole of John's Gospel. He is having this debate, this argument with the, the Jewish leaders, and they just would not believe that he is the Messiah. He would not believe that he is not from this world. And he is saying that even as I am not of this world, so are true Christians. They're born again. They're born of the Holy Spirit. They're born of an, another kingdom. They're citizens of, a, a, of an eternal kingdom. An everlasting kingdom. Their, their heart's affection are now set above, are not, are not below anymore. Is this true? It has to be true. It has to be true if you are concerned about your eternal welfare. Are your own affections set on things above and not on things on the earth? I hope you will take God's word seriously. I hope each and every one of us gathered here today will take God at his word. Take him at his word. Be serious about the word of God. When you become serious about the word of God and are so, so struck by the Holy Spirit, well, then we can expect great blessings in our life. Amen.
Oh, I'm waiting.